You know, when we hear of, uh, or when we hear the word resolution, we automatically, I think, go to the New Year's variety. And um, these types of yearly resolutions can be, in the name of, or in the words of David Paulison, petty or profound. But either way, in most cases, again, in his words, they are purely individualistic. Now, I don't start there to make anyone who made a New Year's resolution feel bad. Okay, Jonathan Edwards made resolutions, and if it's okay for him, then I guess it's okay for the rest of us. But I begin there because regardless of whether you made a New Year's version or not, Most of us in this room have made a resolution, and many of you are considering it, whether you know it or not, you are considering a resolution. But unlike that annual, individual, self-improvement project type of resolution, we're making a, or we have, some of us have made, others are considering a resolution, again, in the words of Mr. Paulison, Uh, that has a corporate context for commitment, uh, reasons for joint effort and mutual accountability, and is a part of a common cause bigger than any and all of us. And that resolution is this. I now resolve and promise, in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit, that I will endeavor to live as becomes the follower of Christ. Does that sound familiar to anybody? I hope so, because that's the third statement of the five statements you affirm when you become a member of a PCA church. So you didn't even know it. Some of you, have, you've been proud. You have never made a resolution. Well, you're wrong. You have resolved. And if you're considering joining Trinity Grace, like I guess 10 plus of you are uh, in the couple months ahead, that is one of those statements that you'll affirm. And since most of us have made that resolution, it would probably be a good idea if we understood what that meant. What does it mean to endeavor to live as become, becomes the followers of Christ? And interestingly enough, God has, by His providence, and uh, on this first Sunday of the new year, brought us to this particular passage in Ephesians chapter 4, because while the title of the message is, Off with the Old and On with the New, we really, I could have used the title... Uh, What does it mean to live as becomes the followers of Christ? So if you would, stand with me in the honor of God's Word. We're going to read again the chapter, or the few verses that Daniel just read. But I'd like for us to read them again, just so they're they're fresh in our minds as as we move forward tonight. Hear now the Word of the Lord. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy, to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, 
and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious Father, we thank you for this time that we might come and to hear from you through your word. And so I would pray that you would bless the word that we have read and that we have heard and that we will now hear preached. And I pray, Father, as I did this morning, that you would remove any obstacles to the word going forth. And that includes this cough I've had. But more importantly, anything that, any pride, any arrogance, anything that would hinder the truth of the gospel and the call we have to walk in a worthy manner. So bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, back in November, when we arrived at chapter 4, we said that the chapter begins, and it's part 2. Part 1 was 1 through 3, chapters 1 through 3, and part 2 is chapters 4 through 6. And we said part 2 begins with the word, therefore. Because everything that he was about to say was going to be built upon what he said in the prior three chapters. And we summarized it this way. Because you were all given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Because you were all chosen to be his children prior to the foundation of the world. Because you've all been redeemed and forgiven. Because you've all been adopted. Because you've all been guaranteed an inheritance and your salvation is sure. Because you were all dead in your trespasses and sins, but now that you've been made alive. Because you were all confined, but have now been released. Because you were all condemned, but have now experienced and continue to experience the kindness and mercy of God. Because you were all created and recreated for good works, so that God might not only express grace to you, but expect grace from you. Because you've all been reconciled to him and to each other. Because you're now all fellow fellow citizens of the kingdom and heirs of the kingdom and fellow members of God's household. I implore you to walk a manner worthy of your calling. Paul says basically because of what God has done in you. Because of who you are and what what is yours in Christ. I'm not simply asking, Paul says, I'm not simply asking, I'm begging you to walk the talk. I'm, I implore you right now to live a life that corresponds, that's in balance with who you are in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, it's, it's not an option. And then he said, and we'll, we'll do this quickly because we been away from our study for about five weeks, six weeks or so. He then said, while we do that, we're to strive for unity. And we strive for unity not by focusing on our diversity, but what we have in common. Uh, He then said that, and he shares that we have been given uh, gifts by Christ. Christ has given us gifts or extended them to us. He's given us gifts that are to be exercised by us. And all those things are for us. And then he wrapped that up by describing what a church looks like that is moving toward maturity. And he said that they are growing up into Christ, uh, they, they have stability in the truth, they speak the truth, and they serve out of that truth. Right, so that, that catches us up. And from this point forward, from now until chapter 6, verse 9, Paul is going to describe for us how we as Christians are to be distinct in our day-to-day living. Because of who we are... 
this is what it should look like. And, and I know, I know that the imperatives or commands make many of us nervous. Right? We, we get all kind of tied up in knots and uncomfortable because we're, we're worried or nervous that you know, we don't want to be perceived as moralistic or legalistic. Um, we don't want to sound works oriented. And I get that. But I think we'll see that Paul's exhortation to us that has been and will continue to be far more than just a moral list of do's and don'ts. It's far beyond just, just be good. He's going to describe a life that springs forth out of what has happened to us. He's going to spring forth out of our standing, out of our position, and who we are in our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, it's going to be, he's going to describe fruit of who we are. Rather than anything that earns or merits standing. So we're going to look at three things. There is an outline in the back of your bulletin tonight. The outline looks like this. The call to live distinctively. Why we are to live distinctively and how we're able to live distinctively. Let's look first at the call to live distinctively. Paul uses some of the similar language that he did at the beginning of verse 4. And he leaves no doubt that what he's about to say is very important. Because he uses that word testify which means to insist. Or the implore. He's back to that, that urgency and that begging. But he also says, he adds to that, uh, that what he's about to say is not simply his opinion. Uh, he actually stresses that this is something that the Lord has said and that he agrees with. And what he's not doing, let make sure you hear, he's not saying, you need to listen to this because the Lord and I agree. He's saying the Lord has said it and I'm affirming it. It doesn't come from me, it comes from him, and therefore it is important. It's non-negotiable. And what's non-negotiable is you are to no longer, he writes to them and says, you are no longer to live as the Gentiles. And what he's saying is you are to, the church is, stopped to live, is, stop, is to stop living like those in the world. And we could boil it down to say Christians are not to act like non-Christians. It doesn't get any simpler than that. Now, he understands, of course, that we're sinners. He called himself the chief, right? Uh, he also understands that it's tempting to, and, and to even to, to revert back into old patterns. He understands um, the old habits and the old lifestyles. He understands the challenges they face because they're living in the same places. They're working in the same places. They're around the same people. He understands it's tough living differently after you've lived that way for so long. But even in that difficulty, he still says, you've got to live differently. I know how difficult it is, but live differently. And fortunately for us, he doesn't leave us to just kind of wonder what that looks like. And he describes... What a life of a non-Christian looks like. First, he says that non-Christians live in the futility of their minds. Basically, he's saying that they have an empty life. And I've, I've read this, I don't know how many times this week, and I keep going back to our study at Trinity Grace and Ecclesiastes. Right? The emptiness and the vanity of striving in life. Uh, they think that their choices that they're making um, are going to give a sense of purpose and fulfillment when in reality... 
Their direction and goals are selfish and they're actually walking down a dead end road that leads to purposelessness and meaninglessness. Secondly, he says that they are headed in that direction because they're darkened in their understanding. They're spiritually ignorant. They they can't think in spiritual terms. And so they're irrational morally and spiritually. Uh, They're relativistic, meaning that they they are their own. They, They determine for themselves what truth is because there is no absolute truth. They're their own authority. And thirdly, he says that Not only are they darkened in their understanding, but they're separated and alienated from God because they willfully and repeatedly rebel against Him. And they act in a way that has hardened their hearts. They're responsible. Really, he's saying that their hearts, the the language there is saying their hearts have become as hard as that calcification around a bone that's broken. It's harder and tougher and stronger than the bone itself. He's saying, he's describing that repeated action, you know, after you get through the blister stage and you, you keep repeating the same motions with your hands and over time the calluses build up. So that what? So that the blisters don't come back. I was trying to play Aaron's guitar earlier and I can't play because I don't play it enough. I don't have the calluses on the ends of my fingers. And he says that that, that buildup has caused a callousness around their heart because they continually over and over and over and they rebel to the point that they're insensitive to God and to His desires and purposes. And then lastly, all of that leads to sensuality, greed, and impurity. And the words sound, they mean how they sound. There's no way of getting around it. Their darkened understanding leads to hardened, calloused hearts. Their calloused heart leads to completely, there's just this absence of moral restraint. And while that phrase, every kind of impurity, is not exclusively, in Scripture, is not exclusively used in a sexual context, it acts, and acts does move beyond it at times, uh, and, and the absence of moral restraint uh, isn't limited to that area of sexual sin, that's, that's really where he is. That's what he's describing. So Paul says that they have this overt and insatiable lust to please and satisfy their urges. They need that pleasure. They need that fulfillment. So they indulge. And when they can't get enough, they just they, they lust more. And they, they have to have these ever-growing, ever-widening, uh, increasing experiences. Not only in number, but in, in excitement and variety. And I'm sure many of you are already have already been drawn to that passage that we, we are maybe more familiar with in Romans chapter 1. He's saying the same thing as he did in Romans 1. He's describing the same process, the same way of life, the same suppression of the truth, the same uh, worship of the creature rather than the creator, the same darkened understanding, the same hardness of heart, the willful rebellion, the same sensuality. And he says Christians are to live distinctly even in a world characterized by that type of behavior. And do I even need to say we need to hear this as much as the Ephesians did? We live in a culture that celebrates this type of behavior. 
not only celebrates it, but, but they, they lift up and exalt this darkened, hardened, godless, self-satisfying, self-gratifying, sinful behavior. We're bombarded with the messages day after day after day that tell us it's okay. And not only is it okay, but they tell us that it's really what we deserve. It's who we are. It's how, how we're to be identified. It defines us. It's our right. And Paul uses the terms that he does because he knows that it is easy for us as believers to become calloused because of repetitious behavior. We can become calloused by the repetition of little decisions that we make on a daily basis that we say and rationalize as no big deal because really we're not hurting anybody. We become calloused because of the repetition of the rebellious behavior that we justify as, well, you know, really, we can stop anytime we want to. So we watch, and we listen, and we read, and we laugh at, and we even participate. All the while, our tolerance for questionable, th- questionable thoughts and ideas, um, entertainment and behavior, it grows. And slowly but surely, we too become insensitive and desensitized. And some of you are going to laugh because I'm going to use this. But back in 2007, right? I think it was Casting Crowns said it. We find ourselves in a slow fade. And Paul says, don't. Don't do it. There should be a distinct difference between us and the world. should be a marked difference. We should have distinguishing characteristics. We shouldn't blend in with everybody around us. We shouldn't be participating in and giving approval of these kinds of things, this type of sensual greeting and impure lifestyle and choices. There's no mistaking it. And of course, we ask why. Why are, why are we to live that way? And he, of course, answers. He says, because that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Paul says Christians live differently because unlike those who are darkened in their understanding, we have learned Christ. And that's not simply, and, and really here is, is more than just an intellectual knowledge. The word describes a relational knowing. So, and this is very important, non-Christians in that empty lifestyle seek relationships to satisfy their needs and to satisfy uh, their own identities and and to satisfy their desires, but ultimately in that fulfillment and that satisfaction, but they ultimately lead again to that dead end and they're ultimately empty and, and hopeless. And Paul says we should not live like them. Why? Because we are in a relationship with Christ. We don't need those other relationships because we're in a relationship with Christ. He said, yes, you know Christ intellectually, but you know him relationally. And this is where it really gets good. The the ESV says, assuming, and we read this, assuming you have heard about him and were taught in him. But the original language says, assuming you have 
heard him. Assuming you have heard him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. And and you hear the point. I'm, I'm stressing it enough. You hear the point, right? And the difference. He's saying, Paul says, don't live like the Gentiles because not only do we have a knowledge about Christ, a knowledge of Christ, but we have been taught by Christ himself. Because we are in union with Him. We're in a relationship with Him. Ligon Duncan says it this way. He says, notice that Jesus is the content of the truth, the conveyor of the truth, and He's the context of the truth. He's the subject of the truth, He's the speaker of the truth, and He's also the sphere in which we learn the truth. Paul's stressing that Christians have more than this factual knowledge of some sort of historical figure and religious concept that's learned in a classroom. And when we, dw- when we dwindle it down to that, that's when we get into trouble. It's beyond the intellect. It's, it is relationship, uh, relational. We have a relationship with Christ. We have uh, learned about Christ from Christ. He is a living person who has not only communicated with us, he continues to communicate to us by his Spirit. So we can not only say we know about Christ, we can say we know Christ. We can not only say that we know the truth, but that we know truth. Or we can flip that around. We know, I know some truth. No, you know the truth. We can not only say that, uh, that we've been taught the things of Christ, but we've been taught by Christ himself. We can not only say that we know Christ died, but we, we know Christ who died for us. So this isn't some intellectual exercise. We're in a relationship with him. We've been united to him. And so Paul says we shouldn't live like the Gentiles because we don't need to live like the Gentiles. Because we don't need those other relationships. Because we're in a relationship with the Son of God. We've been united to him. And that relationship provides that ultimate Satisfaction and that ultimate fulfillment and that ultimate purpose. And so we're united to Him. He has spoken to us. He continues to speak to us through His Word. He continues to give Himself to us through Word and sacrament. And in Paul's words, we're, we're members of Christ. That means we're in fellowship with Him. We're in communion with Him. He is our source. He is our head. In Him we have life and all things pertaining to salvation and godliness. We have no other need. So how? It's the why. Live distinctively. Because you're in a, in a relationship with the Lord Jesus. But how do we do that? Well, he says that basically it's what Christ has taught us. He says, you were taught in him to put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life 
and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. So guess where Paul's going? He's going right back to chapter 1. And we've heard that. Yeah, you have. And he's saying it again. He's saying it again because we forget. And he's going back to that point in time. He's telling him, go back to that point when you heard Christ by and through his spirit and were saved through the message of the gospel. It was at that time that transformation took place. You've been transformed and he's laying out for them again that they, who they are should dictate what they do. Who they are in Christ should dictate what they do. So he says very simply and clearly to live distinctively, stop doing things that were associated with the old self and do the things that are associated with the new self. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. So the old habits, the old sinful patterns that were a part of that life, they at one time were inevitable. Not anymore. They're not inevitable anymore. You've been crucified with Christ. You've been raised to walk in newness of life. That sin nature has been dealt a death blow. And so that old way of thinking, that old way of feeling, that old way of behaving is no longer inevitable. It's not a given. You're no lo- we're no longer in a casket, spiritually speaking. We're alive. With a new identity. And the same spirit and the same power. This, and by the way, this is all in the first three chapters, right? That same spirit that raised Christ from the dead. The same spirit that rose us from, from the spiritual death is now living within us. And we've been created and we've been recreated to be conformed into the image of Christ in righteousness and holiness. And we've been declared to be righteous and holy. And so he says, live like that. And I think it's important for us to know that Paul was not naive at all by any stretch of the imagination. So he, he knew that the change of behavior was not going to be immediate or without stumbling. And he definitely wasn't expecting perfection at all at, at any time. He understood that that old way of life and and, and the way that we lived had been profoundly significant. And he knew firsthand of that ongoing battle that Christians are in. He knew, in the words of one commentator, that, that the residue of the old nature persists. Even though the nature is dead, the old man's patterns of thought, word, and deed have been have placed these deep ruts in our lives. And until we are with the Lord, we're going to struggle with the aspects of our fallen nature. What's well? And again, in the words of this this commentary, he said that basically what happens is he Paul knows that we're going to from time and time again we're going to get back in the casket. Paul also knew and expected us to remember that we need to keep coming back to, keep reminding ourselves to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Language uh, elsewhere in Romans states the same thing here. Right? And it's this. The caskets remain open. When we get back in, they don't close and they're not locked. 
And so all of a sudden that behavior is now inevitable again. And Paul says, no. The caskets remain open. And our temptations and sins shouldn't cause us to think in any way that we're enslaved again to that old sin nature. We're not powerless. We're able to hear the commands to put off the old and to put on the new, to put off the old self and the sin and to put on the new and the righteousness and the holiness. That righteous behavior that we can obey. The key is remembering who we are in Christ. We've been justified eternally. We've been sanctified positionally. We have been loved with an everlasting love. And while that temptation, and we're vulnerable to that temptation, we're vulnerable to sin, it does not have to be inevitable. Paul is stressing, it does not have to be inevitable. And when we do succumb, when we do succumb to sin, and where do we go? We run to the cross. Run to the cross where we will find forgiveness. And then we hear and we read the call to live worthy and we try again. Striving and resting. Striving and resting. Well, our time's gone. And, and I'm going to leave. Now, Paul, get, for those of you that just really want, okay, I, I need, just give me some really nitty gritty things, you know, specific things. That's next week. So you all have to come back. Because he gets really specific through the end of the chapter. What are some things, what are some of those things? What does that look like? How do, how do we know? What, what can we do? But I want to leave you with, a, with at least three things before we pray. First, please, please remember that Paul's message is not, is not, be good and then God will love you, save you, and change you. That's not it. The message is, having been loved, having been made new, having been saved, we're called to live like it. That's the message. Secondly, there are a couple of dangers that we run into. One, you may be in a place tonight. You may be in this place where you don't want, you don't want or can't or won't admit that sanctification is progressive. And that Christians struggle with temptation and sin. And I say that because I've had conversations. I had a conversation with somebody about that a couple of months ago. And, and as a result, what happens is, when you believe that, then you're either, either one of two things, you're either following uh, some formula or standard of holiness uh, that eliminates self-examination. Or, you hole up because you're so terrified of actually admitting that you've got an issue. You've got a sin problem and, and, and you don't want to let anybody in. And let me say, in either case, you're vulnerable. Very, very vulnerable. And I want you to consider this statement. Those who really understand grace know the weakness of the human heart that requires it. Let me say that again. Those who really understand grace know the weakness of the human heart that requires it. We know we need grace. And we're not afraid to admit it. And then secondly, there's some that may think 
that you really understand grace. And I run into this as well. And they really understand grace. And because of that, boundaries have been blurred. And in some cases, completely eliminated. And so what happens is that there's, there's a toleration for questionable entertainment. There's, there's this self-indulgence in, in terms of money that's spent and time that's spent. Uh, there's, there's less concern for how you talk and for how you act and for how you behave. It's just, you know, I just... And you actually misunderstand grace. Paul says we're called to true righteousness and holiness. And, and our responsibility is to, is to be in His Word so that we can distinguish and we know, right? Where are those boundaries? How are we to live as we're called to live? And lastly, I hope we'll all come to the place where we understand more fully the importance of living distinctively and the language of our membership vow. Endeavoring to live as becomes the follower of Christ. We should, for the sake of Christ, of course, in His church. We should, of course, uh, for the good of our neighbor and for the good of our community. But I think it's okay to say we should for ourselves. And here's what I mean. We've been created to be like Him. We've been recreated to, and saved to be holy and righteous. We've been saved, we learn in chapter 2, we've been saved unto good works, prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So the reality is our greatest satisfaction, our greatest fulfillment, and what gives us true purpose and meaning is found or experienced when we are and when we do what God has created us to be and do. And that means when, when we remember who we are and all that is ours in Christ, it's when we remember that we are in a relationship with the Savior. It's when we put off the old self and say no to sin and we put on the new self and say yes to righteousness and holiness that we experience true and complete and full satisfaction. And it's our striving in our God, to live godly in our lives and in our marriages and in our families and our friendships and the jobs that we have and really any pursuit we set out to do, when we're striving to be godly in those ways, it is the most satisfying, fulfilling, and re rewarding thing we could ever experience. Because it's then that we're doing what God, by His grace, has created us to do and saved us to do. And so as I prayed earlier, we need to remember obedience to the Lord is not oppressive. It's also not optional. Our obedience to the Lord is for His glory and for our good, which is why we exist and we say it in, in, in our bulletin and on our website. And, and it's not just something that we put out there that it sounds good. We put it out there because it's a reality. We want to live in a way that glorifies God as good for ourselves and for our neighbor. And Paul says this is how we should live. Because it's who we are. Let's pray together.